does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. By the way, we should also pass along, again, if you are just joining us this morning, uh, just over six hours ago, the Buffalo Bills did send an update. DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest following a hit in the Buffalo Bills game versus the Cincinnati Bengals. His heartbeat was restored on the field, and he was transferred to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center for further testing and treatment. He is currently sedated and listed in critical condition. Uh, in other football news regarding injuries, Purdue, uh, obviously, did you see? Did you watch much of the Citrus Bowl and see the injury? Yeah, Deion, it was Deion Burks. Is Correct. that his name? Yeah, um, I did see that. He was... Taken to a local hospital, right, but released. Did I see that correctly? Dion Burks has movement in all extremities. Due to neck pain, precautionary measures were taken to stabilize him after the injury. He was taken to a local hospital where he will be fully evaluated and undergo additional testing. That from Purdue at about 6 o'clock last night. Then they later announced all medical scans were normal and Dion is feeling better. He has been discharged from the hospital. So that is good news. Yeah, good news on that front. Again, we will talk a little bit more Pacers and Purdue um, coming up later in the show, uh, but continue to focus on the DeMar Hamlin situation. We actually had a listener, uh, Craig, who was a um, ICU nurse, uh, call in. And I, first off, Craig, thank you for, for doing that. Um, I guess you, you, your thoughts on everything that transpired last night and if the best you can kind of take us behind the scenes and, and what you imagine took place, whether it be on the field or at the trauma center. Yeah, so after somebody's had cardiac arrest and then you have to do CPR, um, you're not only worried in that immediate time frame, especially right after you get them back, but you're worried a lot for the heart and the brain within 24 to 48 hours after the event. So a lot of times you'll take them back to the hospital and you'll put them in into a kind of hypothermia. And that has been shown to really significantly reduce future damage to the heart and to the brain. And so the most likely that's what they did is they took him back. They've got him cooled down and they're keeping him sedated and monitoring everything. Uh, and they'll do that over the next few days to really monitor where things are with his heart neurologically, make sure that he's not getting more damage even up to 24, 48 hours after the event. Now, Craig, um, I want to ask you a couple of things here. And first off, I guess to protect you, I, you know, I want to make sure I'm not asking in specific with this Hamlin case because we don't know, right? So speaking in generalities yeah. here, um, one of the reports that came last night, I believe it was one of the initial reports. Uh, from, it may have been from the Bills, I can't recall, but there was a report that he was intubated. For those that are unfamiliar, that means that a tube was put in one's air passageway to essentially breathe for you. Uh, is is that a common occurrence in these types of situations that someone would be intubated? Yes. Yeah, that usually happens. If somebody's in the hospital and goes into cardiac arrest, it's 
pretty much 100% guarantee they'll be intubated and sedated. Uh, if you're ever going to sedate somebody, you will intubate them and put them on a ventilator so that you're actually doing the breathing for them and they're not going to stop breathing. One of the things that I was introduced to last night, Craig, I, I was unfamiliar. Maybe I had heard like in passing of this phenomenon. Again, we don't know for certain and may never know for certain that this was what took place last night. But I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Commodio or commotio cordis, which is a, a trauma to the chest area right at the moment like literally in the millisecond between when the heart is pushing out and then restricting again during a heartbeat and that trauma causes the heart to cease in continuing its beat electrically speaking have you ever witnessed that sort of an event uh no i've not witnessed well or i mean the recovery of said event i guess i should say not that specifically um Lots of other causes for cardiac arrest, but not that specifically. Craig, it was mentioned last night, I, I believe, that maybe nine minutes of CPR, if I, I recall correctly. Um, how does that number compare to what you are used to hearing? Yeah, if you're not in a hospital where they've got IVs already started and can push a lot of different medications, then... Um, nine minutes is is actually a pretty decent amount of time for CPR and for his heart to restart. By decent, you mean that that's encouraging, or decent meaning like that's longer than you would expect? That's encouraging. Okay. Yeah, so when you're doing CPR, you're actually pumping the blood through the body. Um, you're almost it's almost like you're artificially making the heart work when gotcha. you're doing CPR. So. You're, you still got blood pumping through and supplying all the the tissues and the organs with the oxygenated blood that they need. So it's it's not like nine minutes without a heartbeat or without actual blood flow. You've got blood flow while you're doing CPR. Gotcha. Um, when you mentioned earlier... Um, and again, for those that are just now joining us, Craig, very kind to call in, ICU nurse, I, I assume locally here, Craig? Yes, sir. Um, when you mentioned the neurological worries and concerns and the immediacy and now the 24, 48-hour period that we will enter after, is that more oxygen to the brain related? Um, to some degree, yes, but a lot of it is the body's reaction to the cardiac arrest and CPR, um, and then some byproducts that you get related to your acid and acid-based balance in your body. Craig, let me let me finish by saying this to you. So do you work in, you say ICU, so you see it all, right? I mean, you're not necessarily specifically in a cardiology unit, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, cardiologically speaking... You know, I was pretty close, right? I mean, I only say it because I can relate to, obviously not what Mr. Hamlin is going through, but to an extent. I mean, I was there with nurses and doctors working on me uh, when all hell was breaking loose. And 
you know, when you've got a 100% blockage, stuff gets real, real fast, right? Yeah. And I'm asked a lot how I, and I ask myself a lot probably, how I made it out of that room. And, you know, Craig, quite frankly, um, it's because when you go into that moment, you feel a connection with the people that are working on you and you trust them and they have a demeanor about them that carries you through. And that's not to say that if they don't make it out that you weren't that way in that moment, but I don't know that you realize, Craig, when you go into work every day, the possibility that somebody's going to make it out of that room just because of the grace you carry. And so for those that do, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, um, I mean, it's a lot more important than talking about sports, talking about sports. I can tell you that. And you know, it's, you never forget it, man. I mean, I almost feel sorry for Craig. I appreciate the call. Craig, thank you very Kevin, much. I, I almost feel sorry sometimes for nurses and doctors because I mean, you as a, as a patient, you feel this bond with them like forever. Right. And they're like, yeah, man, I'm just doing my job. And I'm one of like a thousand people that feel that connection to them. And they got lives to live, man. They don't. They don't need to be like having me talk to them all the time. But I'm telling you, that's what. Uh, that is what carries you through, Jake. Um, it's probably some combination of COVID slash having two babies be delivered in the last two and a half years. The small, small, small positive I think of us having to go through COVID and your situation times you know a million. Our appreciation for nurses, our appreciation for first responders, while I want to believe it was always extremely high, in my opinion, should be through the roof. And I just, oh yeah, I mean, I can't, I think I've shared it before, just watching the chaotic nature of when Max was delivered and how quickly all of that happened and the uncertainty and the nervousness and seeing the doctor, I mean, this is 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, seeing the doctors and the nurses and how composed they are. Um, it, it takes an extremely rare individual to be cool, calm, and collected in those moments, um, and then to deliver, for lack of a better term, in terms of what they know and the knowledge that they've gained through years of um, learning, and then to execute all of that, um, it, it's a task that I could never imagine doing. And, you know, for those doctors and medical people on the field last night i mean can you imagine that i mean that's a little bit of a different nature than you're in versus a hospital room or you know even just a typical public event you know if you're at a restaurant and you know you have to tend to someone there you know 60 70 000 people and you know all these people crying around you um yeah Gosh. i mean listen it's you know it was surreal for everybody there i think also because, you know, it's kind of one of those like you never think it'll happen to you type moments. Um, and, and so for the players, they're all looking at it thinking like that that could be me, right? I mean, that, that could easily be me. Um, there are a lot of dominoes to it. I mean, you do feel for T. Higgins as well because, right? you know, I mean, what must be going through his mind? And the hit itself, I guess for those that didn't see it or don't want to see it, and I apologize if this sounds... It looked fairly innocuous, right? Insensitive. Jake, that's a hit you see every other no drive. Question. 
in the NFL. T. Higgins makes a catch, turns up field. DeMar Hamlin makes a tackle and almost kind of absorbs T. Higgins. I don't know if that's like a great way to describe it, but just kind of absorbed the hit and got up for a brief instant and then fell to the ground. And obviously, we saw everything unfolded after that. So we'll continue to keep you posted on things. Um, Thank you to Craig for calling in. And Jake, I know it's a very emotional I'm sure it was very emotional for you last yeah, night. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried. And you know, last night. I appreciate night, you sharing this. Kevin, and, and listen, I, I want to apologize for people if I lost, like, composure there, but you, you don't know really what triggers it. I, you know, last night watching it, it was like, wow, you know, I, I I keep forgetting that I had an incident involving my heart. I You know, not to that level because I didn't have total cardiac arrest. I never lost consciousness. Um, so maybe that's why, for me, it's, it's emotional because I can remember every single moment of it. And like when you're in that moment, you're just, you know, your, your loved ones aren't around. You know, you're, you're in that room and you're thinking to yourself, as I was, you're thinking to yourself, this is probably it. You know, this is, I never thought I would live to be this age. I thought I'd live longer than this, but this is very possibly the end of my life. And these are the last people I'm going to be around. And in that moment, um, you want them to have that grace, and I hope that they realize that, that they realize that that's what people are relying on them for. And so you just never know when that is going to be triggered in you to go back to that moment. I do want to share a couple of DeMar Hamlin stories here in just a second. Um, Jake, one of the first things I thought of last night when words start, you know, when we realized there was going to be no thumbs up. There was going to be no, I'm okay. There was going to be no, you know, crowd cheering and he's, you know, whatever. If he can wave, something like that, that you, that you often see with these situations when players suffer, you know, the types of injuries where they needed to be carted or stretched off the field, stretched off the field. I thought about John Stewart. And I was admittedly very young when that happened, but it was probably one of the more impressionable sports life stories what year would that have been? 90, 98, John Stewart? That sounds right. Right around the turn of the I century? I was working that night at Channel 6. I think 98 or 99 sounds right. You know, I was 9, maybe 10 years old. And at that point, sports and life don't really intersect. You know, it's probably 99.9% of sports for me. And when I realized what happened, and I mean, I had gone to local basketball games and watch John Stewart play. Like, I mean, I, I knew who he was and I think Kyle Nedenrip, it was a couple years ago now, you know, wrote a piece on when Ellen and Bloomington South played and Jack Kiefer and J.R. Holmes still coaching there and just the memories from Chris Hill and everybody that was on the court, Andy Means, everybody on the court that night when it occurred, I believe in Columbus, if I'm not mistaken, where that game was played. That is what I thought of last night and obviously in a high school gym and seeing all of that happen and for a 17 18 year old individual I mean hell DeMar Hamlin's not much older than that I guess it is pretty much the same thing a little bit of a different environment that was the event that I thought of last night the the John Stewart incident um, led to eventually a program there's a gentleman uh, Doug is his first name that lives down near Batesville but he started a foundation locally I know of called giving hearts a hand that does pre-season heart scans and screenings for high school athletes to it is impossible always to detect everything within the heart but you can 
you can hopefully determine if somebody has the condition that John Stewart had or if there is significant blockage or um, you know blockage can come either via cholesterol or plaque that develops inside the arteries uh, and and those things are allowed they can scan those things they're never 100% pure of course but if there is an issue like a John Stewart had the hope is that a young athlete would be able to determine that and have it taken care of before they get involved where the heart is obviously put into a situation where it's working extra hard against itself um, and so I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage for people of all ages to get a heart scan. Never fail proof, but doesn't hurt. We're going to talk a little bit of Pacers coming up in about 10 minutes. Jeremiah Johnson going to join us um, some Purdue in the 9 o'clock hour. We'll obviously continue to update you, if there are any updates, on DeMar Hamlin. Did want to share just a couple of stories on you know maybe him outside of Football. He is a Pittsburgh native, went to high school about 10 minutes from the University of Pittsburgh, decided to stay home, um, wanted to be close to his mother. His mother had him at the age of 16. Um, he had a younger brother. I don't even think it was elementary age, so that was a big reason why he said he wanted to stay home for college. Uh, this is a quote that DeMar Hamlin shared about being a role model, uh, and I quote here, everyone's situation is different, but that at the end of the day, this way of life right here is going to have you more successful than a lot of those other paths, and it's shown. If you stay straight on this path, you just use your resources and connect with the right people, you'll be successful, you'll turn out okay, and it will all be okay for you. I find that quote pretty relevant because... Hamlin's father spent three and a half years in jail um, during some pretty impressionable years of Hamlin's childhood. Um, He mentioned that it kind of stripped the imagination of a kid. Uh, And and I'll share this quote as well from Hamlin. And I quote, that's when my outlook on life changed, Hamlin said about his father going to prison. I had to take reality for reality and couldn't be a kid anymore. It was just me and my mom now trying to survive. I had to grow up really fast. It instilled a toughness in me, that mental toughness. It built that work ethic in me. Just that time with not having my dad around, I had to be a man. It changed my life. You know, When you hear, Jake, about him off the field and his mother and I'm sure this has some relevance to your mom. Um, mom runs a daycare, Kelly and Nina's daycare in the Pittsburgh area. Sounds like DeMar grew up in, in, in certainly not the greatest part of Pittsburgh, and he wanted to do a toy drive for the kids at the daycare. Uh, and so following his senior season at Pittsburgh, he did that. His goal was about 2500 um, That GoFundMe account has really taken off on Twitter I retweeted it last night for those that are looking for it, um, and that GoFundMe has over three million. Um, so, obviously, Demar Hamlin's situation is of utmost importance right now, but it's great to see humanity showing up in a big, big way there. You know the the Buffalo Bills as a franchise, and, and you know who knows what happens from here forward regarding that game or the schedule or whatever else. But you know they have been through. Nothing compares to this, I realize, but just the city of Buffalo and, you know, the people there, though. I mean, loss of life in Buffalo after the storm they just had, unfortunately, has been more common than one would expect. We had a shooting there. Um, What's that? Prominent shooting there, sadly. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's been a rough year for the city of Buffalo and for the spirit of those people. And, you know, for a lot of them, the bills are probably the outlet that allows them to to pull together. And they got to pull together now probably as, as much as 
ever before. Okay, Jeremiah Johnson going to join us in a few. Jake, were you in? Um, you you brought up and boy, I, I don't. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Um, the condition that people thought Harmon might have suffered last night with that hit starts with a C. Uh, commodio cortis, or com- I, I believe it's either commotio cortis or commodio cortis. Again, we don't know that for sure, Correct. but some people were mentioning last night Chris Pronger, former Blues player, suffered a slap shot to the chest in 98. Okay, that was right before I was there. Okay, yep. and suffered that. Um, again, this is the furthest thing from trying to compare the two situations I feel a bit insensitive in doing that so I apologize but for what it's worth Pronger made a full recovery actually played in the NHL for over a decade after that um so I think you know again if we're trying to look at other situations that have occurred that was one that I saw mentioned um last night well there was the and it wasn't that situation but the soccer player obviously. yeah Denmark um Christian Eriksson, I believe, for Denmark in the right. Euros uh, last year, maybe two years ago, suffered a heart attack on the field. And, and then my uncle was texting me last night. I didn't. 1971, Chuck Harris. Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Harris. Hughes. Chuck Hughes, Lions Wide player. for the Lions, right? Yeah. Um, who passed on the field. Yeah, he had had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had caught a pass, was running back towards the huddle. He was right near Dick Buckus, as a matter of fact. And he passed away at the age of 28. Um, he had basically one of his coronary arteries was blocked at 75%, and he had a family history of heart disease. Um, you know, as did I. Again, the, the blockage can happen one of two ways. If you think of a garden hose, you either over the course of time can just get dirt that cakes inside the garden hose and narrows the passage of it, or you can get a rock that goes in the middle of it. Um, and in my case, I had a piece of rogue plaque that broke away, scraped the artery wall, and then a blood clot formed. And so I had a rock in the middle. And so it was not gradual. It was instantaneous. Um, but yes, Chuck Hughes is the only NFL player, and we certainly hope remains, God willing to him, the only NFL player to pass away on the field. Again, before we get to a morning check down the latest on DeMar Hamlin, this around 140 last night from the Buffalo Bills. I know a lot of people are kind of in and out, driving into work, probably back to work or back to school coming up here on this Tuesday morning. So this from the Bills. DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest following a hit in our game versus the Bengals last night. His heartbeat was restored in the field, and he was transferred to the UC Medical Center for further testing and treatment. He is currently sedated and listed in critical Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
expedition. Uh, the situation involving DeMar Hamlin and the Buffalo Bills and his critical injury last night in Cincinnati. Again, critical condition. He did suffer cardiac arrest. They did get a resuscitation of pulse on the field before he was taken to the hospital and um, was put, obviously, into a sedation and we'll monitor from there. But the Pacers did play last night. There's still plenty to talk about with the blue and gold. Joining us now on the Payless Sickers Hotline, he is with Bally Sports Indiana. Jeremiah Johnson joins us. And, J.J., this is kind of an odd one, actually, because you go from you know playing the four on at home, and then all of a sudden you got to go on the road for one with Philly and come right back for two more on the road. Kind of a quirk in the schedule, I guess. Is Does that almost like throw off a team at all when, when – you know, you kind of, it, it'd be an easy game to overlook, I would think. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe you'd overlook it if it was a different opponent or situation. But when you're facing Joel Embiid and the Sixers, I think you'll have their attention. And uh, the other thing that makes it maybe a little bit unusual to what the Pacers have faced this season is it, it seems like there have been so many multi game road trips. Uh, it hasn't always been that way. But I think this is the only, the second one game trip. We had a, a one game trip to Cleveland in December, but. Uh, for the most part, there have been a five, obviously there was like the six gamer and then there was a five gamer and we've had a, a two gamer. So just to have the one game is a little bit unusual for this season, but maybe not that unusual per norm in the NBA. Okay, Jeremiah Johnson's with us. JJ, you know this full well. My love for Benedict Matherin is, you know, Quinn Buckner like for smothered chicken. So the fact that I'm asking you a Matherin question probably won't shock you. Something I was saying to Jake earlier. It seems like the games that he circles on the calendar, and I, I guess it's a bit unfair to me acting like what he circles on the calendar, but whether it was the LeBron game earlier this year, you know, playing the defending champs in Golden State, uh, you know, early on the season, you know, playing guys drafted above him last night, I would assume it meant more to him in that it was the Canadian NBA team. It seen that he lived in Montreal, his college teammate, Christian Coloco as well, on the Raptors. It seems like those games, he rises to the occasion even more. And amidst, you know, he had some struggles, I think, mid to late December, but I think he's found a rhythm again here over the past week or so. The fact that he does kind of step up in those moments, to me, is another sign of, you know, bright, bright future for him. Yeah, Kevin, I think the last point of your question is the best part, is that he does step up in those big moments. And sometimes... I feel like I notice over the course of a game, there just needs to be just a little bit of a trigger, whether it is the crowd or whether it is maybe a little scuffle or just a little back and forth with someone on the opposition or maybe even on the opposing coaching staff. And I saw him looking over to the Raptors bench a few times, and we do know that there are some Toronto coaches, including Nick Nurse, that he mentioned to me in the walk-off interview that he had some connections with in Team Canada. I don't think it was anything necessarily negative but you could tell he was fired up and I think he goes into every game with a pretty um, serious mindset and an intent on making an impact in the game but there is no moment that is too big for him and so it was no surprise to me that once he was hitting those shots and you sort of saw that look in his eye he was not going to come out of the game sometimes it's a pleasant problem that Rick Carl has trying to figure out who will close games because if you have the bench unit on the court Sometimes you don't want to play them necessarily all of the end of the third quarter and then all of the fourth quarter, but Benedict Matherin was going to be part of that closing five last night, and he made some big shots 
And it's what you want from a player that you're counting on, not just now, but in the future, someone that can embrace that moment, someone that maybe you can call a play for coming out of a timeout with 30 seconds left and know he's going to knock that shot down. And I'm seeing the Pacers have multiple players like that, and that's what you really want to see. Did anybody ever call you Jeremy as a kid? Has it always been Jeremiah? Uh, it always is Jeremiah or JJ. Uh, Jeremy was probably the one name that I did not prefer. Gotcha. Only, and this was too much information, but there was a, a classmate of mine named Jeremy that was not my favorite person, mm. and so I really didn't like to be yeah. confused as a Jeremy. I'll meet you by the monkey bars, um, like JJ said to Jeremy. <laughs> well, the, the reason times. I say it, in all honesty, Jeremiah, the reason I, I asked is because I was about to refer to you as JJ, but... I don't want to use a name that is esoteric to only those of us that our listeners don't know, but I think outside of the arena, you're known as JJ as well, right? I mean, as opposed to just Jeremiah Johnson? Pretty much, yeah. A lot of people call me JJ. I can remember when I was in elementary school and one of my friends said, is it all right, Jeremiah's kind of long, can I call you JJ? And I said, sure, and it, it kind of stuck, and I have no, I have no issues with it whatsoever. I would say close friends and family don't always say JJ, but pretty much anyone else, and honestly, anyone that wants to say that, I'm perfectly okay with okay. it. Even on my Twitter handle, it says Pacers JJ, so how could I complain about it? So this is the Jeremiah Johnson, this is the Jeremiah of Peru that is not a psychopath, okay? Um, so Jeremiah, here's my question for you, or JJ, I guess. Is it possible that we now have enough body of work on this Pacers team to definitively say that they have arrived early and that that might, in fact, kind of slow down the retool or rebuild, if you will, and change the trajectory of how they were planning on doing it by going more with this core than what they had thought at the beginning of the year? It has changed the trajectory. I don't know if I would say slow down. It might speed up. I mean, I do think that going into the season, you heard what I heard. We heard it straight from the front office. There was almost uh, an expectation or maybe an, a, a word of advice to the fans to have some patience that it may take a little bit longer than expected, and it's been anything but that. And this is another what I would uh, qualify as a pleasant problem. The other pleasant problem was over the course of a game decisions to make, and now you have to maybe make some different decisions because where you thought you might be just in terms of reality is completely different. You're sixth in the Eastern Conference. You're winning six of seven and against teams that are both playoff teams that are at full strength. That's the biggest thing that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks. And I did think in the middle of December when you had that rough patch on the road and you were kind of almost treading water just a little bit, and then you lost four or five and were just unable to close games. I did think when you got to that first week of January after facing this tough stretch of the schedule, you would probably know a lot about the direction the team would take for the rest of this season. And now that you've won six of seven, which I don't think anyone could have expected or even and the most optimistic of Pacers fans could have really hoped for when you considered that Three were on the road, all against really good teams, Celtics, Heat, Pelicans. And then that four-game homestand, there were no gimmies. There were no pushovers. And you got every team's best shot. And to win all four of those, I think it does make everyone take a step back and say, okay, what can this team, this current team, what can they accomplish? And 
it's a better question for the front office. I'm guessing we'll hear from them at some point in February. I'm not sure they're too interested in doing a lot of interviews right now because they've got a lot of decisions to make over the next month. But they, it is completely different than what I think anyone thought this team would be doing right now. And who knows what direction they'll take. But if you keep winning games, you're, you're going to look to the present a little bit more than maybe you were looking to the future. JJ, if you could pick one player on this year's roster and you could have purchased them at what it was anticipated their value or contribution would be at the beginning of the year and sell them right now for what their contribution or value is to the franchise, what player would make you the most money? I would probably say Aaron Neesmith, and I don't want to say that I'm ready to sell on Aaron Neesmith. No, I I get it, though. I'm with you. I'm with you. Because he started to show a little offensive game, right? I mean, he's he's obviously one of their better wing defenders, but I think we're starting to see he can score a little bit. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, there was a point early in the season when you want every player in a catch-and-shoot situation, for the most part, to be confident to shoot that shot. But there were times in November, and he probably was just getting back to full health, and he had a foot issue, had the same foot issue on, on both of his feet. So if we think about that first month of the season, it just didn't look like he was the guy you wanted to shoot that three-point shot. You were confident that he could guard some some of the other team's best players, and that's what got him the playing time, but you really didn't think about offense. And now, I don't know whether he's changed his form or it's just the confidence or he's in a really good rhythm, but now I want him to shoot that three-point shot. And then he is attacking the basket with such ferocity, you need uh, no further example than what you saw against the Cavaliers last week that you can't take him off the court. And that, again, gets back to what I said about the closing five. In late November and December, there was no question the way Benedict Matherin was playing that he was on the court for close games in the fourth quarter, and maybe Aaron Neesmith was not, even if he had started or played early. And now you need him on the court, not just for his defense, but for his offense. And so you look back to that offseason trade to the Celtics, I think everyone just thought you were getting – a number one pick that would probably be in the late 20s and you were maybe moving Malcolm Brogdon to create some cap space and also maybe just as important some playing time. And now you think, okay, you also got this lottery pick that never had a chance to really show what he could do in Boston. And maybe he wasn't ready, truthfully, the first two years in the league. But now he's starting on a team that has won six of seven. He's guarding the best wing on the opposition, which this is a position of need for the Pacers that we have said for the last couple of seasons. Um, I don't know that his stock could be any higher. And I had some uh, some friends that they're in, they're getting into the uh, the card collecting, and they said last week, my, my sons are searching eBay for Aaron Neesmith rookie cards. So I think that would be, go. that would qualify to your <laughs> statement. Uh, he's skyrocketing right now. He is Jeremiah Johnson. We got his name situation clarified. Right. Thank you to Jake for that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's joining us <laughs> he's here. He's good Jeremy on the Payless Liquors hotline. JJ, uh, just to take you inside the Bowen household a bit, 7.45 is bedtime for Rosie, so we usually head upstairs. She'll stall like, you know, a four-corner offense in high school, and, you know, usually that leads to three books and four books, and I'm like, all right, I got to get downstairs because one of my favorite things to watch on the Pacers broadcast is your assistant coach interview coming back from halftime. I find that to be extremely enlightening, uh, very candid, no matter who it is. Jenny uh, Busick, I think it was last night, Ronald Nord, Mike, Mike Weiner, all three of them um, do an outstanding job 
uh, in sharing information with you. And I'm more just curious than anything, like, how did that start? I, I have a feeling like there are some head coaches around the league that would be like, we're not sharing anything with the television broadcast, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and, and throw Lloyd Pierce in there as well. Yeah, Lloyd, yeah, uh, I, I thank think, you. You know, longtime Pacers fans, we've been able to do this for a number of years, and I think you'll go back to the Dan Burke interview. So it's something that uh, that was all that was always the must see TV. And with a different coaching staff and a different group of assistants, you have to kind of redevelop that relationship and that that chemistry. And it was something that when when Rick Carlisle was here, and once we got out of COVID, that was one thing we really weren't able to do. So that was missing from the broadcast. And so now home or road we have that opportunity on a rotating basis to talk with those assistants so Rick Carlisle gave his blessing I think and one of the things he has done is he is empowering his assistants to have a voice he gives them a lot of credit for what they're doing in practice for the adjustments they're making in the games and I think the coaches they they look forward to that opportunity as well it's a chance for not only for them to get you know their voice out there but also to just share a little bit of insight, which I think is really important. I mean, it's all about access right now, and we want the broadcast to, to give you as much of what you want as a fan and as a viewer. And I'll give, you know, Jenny last night said a lot of really good things. And you know it's pretty um, impactful, and it's not just coach speak when Quinn Buckner, for all the basketball that he has seen, I'll find him during the second half bringing back up things that they said during that interview, and it's things we're watching for in the second half of the game. And so it's usually alphabetical order. If you want to kind of go down the list, it was Jenny Busick last night. So Ronald Norridge should be the assistant coach that I chat with in Philadelphia and we'll continue to go down the line. They all have a little bit of a different area of expertise. Uh, you know, Lloyd Pierce oversees sort of everything. Ronald Norridge, I really try tend to try to ask the defensive oriented questions. Um, and Mike Weiner, maybe a little more, a little bit more on offense and Jenny, I mean, she does a great job explaining everything and really uh, holds nothing back I and mean, tells you exactly what they're working on, what they'll be watching for. And I thought she did a good job of explaining what they saw from the Raptors, how they hit those three-pointers, but maybe that wouldn't be sustainable in the second half. And, and it wasn't, truthfully. So I, I think uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad we have a chance to give them a shout-out for what they're doing all of the time, but also in taking that interview seriously. Uh, last one before we let you go. This might be more of a Chris Denary question. Um, how have the ratings been um, on Bally? I would assume pretty strong considering how this team has played, and frankly, the Colts' lack of success probably contributes to a little bit of it, but uh, any info there on um, where you guys have been from a rating standpoint, maybe compared to recent seasons? Well, we call them numbers, so it is absolutely a Christianary question. He does a little report every single day. I do not always see it. And uh, you can you can get frustrated at times when you take a daily look at the ratings. Probably you, you but for your show as well, you can think you have a really good show, and there's a lot of people paying uh, we, attention. We never think that about shows. I was going to say, that would be news to <laughs> me, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad analogy there. I'll go back to Fox 59. We used to get the ratings reports, and sometimes after a Sunday show, you'd think, oh, I hope that was great, and and then maybe the Sunday night football game kind of took all of your audience. And so I do know that the last month, people are definitely tuning back in. I don't have the specific numbers for you, and it was maybe a little bit slow going early on in the season, but I think they're on an uptick. And it's also similar to what we're seeing at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, and I did want to say that because I really felt it, and it's not just – positive PR speak. The atmosphere in those games during that four-game homestand was electric. Even on a Monday night when kids are going back to school, 
Um, it was a pretty loud atmosphere, and the sixth man, the six men and women, they did a really good job of getting the crowd or getting the players fired up, and the, and the players in turn fired the crowd up. So atmosphere is good, crowd's good, ratings on on an upswing, and we hope that continues. Hopefully, just a few less games. There have been a lot of these games of the Pacers play at the same time as the Colts. Colts in prime time, Pacers playing, and I know it was a rough season for the Colts, but. Hopefully the Pacers can continue to attract eyeballs as we're into 2023. Pacers and Sixers tomorrow night from Philly. JJ, safe travels this afternoon, and uh, always enjoy it. Thank you. All right. See you, KB and JQ. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. It is 9.03 in Indianapolis. It is technically 9.03 everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Quarry, Kevin Bowen here as well, Mark Dykton. Flying the ship for us, it's Kevin and Quarry on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. We have talked primarily about the situation involving DeMar Hamlin and the Buffalo Bills from last night, but there was sports that was played, obviously, throughout the course of the evening as well, and that includes the number one team in the country, the Purdue Boilermakers, for the second straight year, losing while number one to Rutgers. This time, Purdue at 13-0. and They are now 13-1, 2-1 in Big Ten play. Rutgers comes in and gets the upset. They are now 10-4 and and 2-1 and in the league as well. Joining us on the Payless Sugars Hotline, Rob Blackman is the radio voice of Purdue basketball, and he joins us to talk about it. Rob, listen, the reality is Rutgers is a darn good basketball team. I think that they – I like their grit and their tenacity. Borderline football team at times. Yeah, but what was Purdue able – or excuse me, what was, what was Rutgers able to do against Purdue that others were not? Well, let's start with this. When Rutgers first entered the league, I kind of hoped we could schedule those guys five or six times a season because they were that bad. Now I'd like to petition that Rutgers have to leave the Big Ten immediately. <laughs> I, I think IU would sign that petition too, Rob. <laughs> I mean, and what is it with the Indiana teams that they have so much success against both IU and us? You think about this, with that, with that win last night, guys, Rutgers has now beaten Purdue five of the last six times they've played us. Think about that, five of the last six they have beaten us. Uh, it used to be, at least up until this year, I thought it was just a Geo Baker thing because we never seem to have an answer for that guy, but apparently it's more than Geo Baker. I think what it comes down to is that they are so physical and so long and so athletic and they play with such tenaciousness on the defensive end that they're just so hard to score on. Um, and I, and just sitting courtside and watching it last night, you're quickly reminded about how good they are on defense. I mean, they, they give you nothing easy on the defensive end. I mean, nothing. 
maybe Purdue's easiest shot of the game was actually the wide open look that Brandon Newman had to win the game. That that might have been the only open look it felt like that Purdue had uh, the whole night. And of course, uh, Brandon wasn't able to make that shot. But it's just what they do to you defensively. They just harass you, and they're so physical with you. Um, I, and Coach Painter had a great quote. I don't know if you saw it in the post game last night, but he just talked about how physical and how tough they are. And he said, and I don't get, I won't get this 100% correct, but something to the effect of, if we were going to war, we would stop in New Jersey and pick up Rutgers on our way because that is how tough those guys are and how hard they play. So um, that's just that's what they do, and that is it's if you look at the. You look at the Big Ten records, and I'm talking Big Ten games only, over the last four years, Purdue has far and away been the best team in the Big Ten as far as wins and losses, except for against Rutgers. Uh, whatever the reason, <laughs> Rutgers has Purdue's number, and uh, I'm glad we only play them once this year. Thank goodness Purdue does not have to go to Piscataway and play these guys again. Uh, because I'm sick of playing Rutgers, man. We we just can't find a way to beat those guys. Rob, I think one of the things that made Purdue pretty unique last year is if Jaden Ivey was off the floor, Travion Williams or Zach Eady could kind of be a catalyst, and vice versa. When the bigs were off the floor and foul trouble, obviously Jaden Ivey could could be the lead guy and was often the the lead guy. I, I watch this year's team and I'm thinking, man, if it's not Eady, and, and it's not just Eady scoring, you just throw it into him, he draws the double, and then all of a sudden you've initiated offense because he's kicking it out and guys are swinging it and you're finding open shots. I think that's a bit concerning to me. I know Edie still played a decent amount of minutes last night, but if and when foul trouble arises for him, very curious to see if Purdue's supporting cast can do enough. Because right now, I know Newman had a couple shots last night. The Jenkins kid, I feel like, is struggling. It, it just seems like Purdue could use somebody else to step up. Yeah, and, and, and Matt Painter said the exact same thing that you just said, Kevin. L- literally almost to a T to what you just said. Uh, when he joined us on the post-game radio show. Uh, because really last night, and, and Zach did play 28 minutes, so he did he did play a lot of minutes. But uh, he was in foul trouble for the first time really all season. Uh, he picked up his first foul 20 seconds into the game, uh, picked up his second foul midway through the first half, and then Matt kind of had to kind of sporadically play him from there uh, just to try his best to keep him out of foul trouble. So really for the first time all year, Purdue played a quality team with Zach in foul trouble, and Purdue did not respond well to that. Because just as you said, uh, offense has been initiated through Zach Eady, uh, Zach Eady all season long. Um, it is very rare when Purdue runs a play in half-court offense and Zach Eady does not touch the ball. Uh, I, I don't know what the percentages would be uh, if you broke it down, uh, uh, but I, I'm certain it has to be in the 90 percentile that Purdue throws the ball to Zach Eady at least once in half-court offense. Um, and so, yeah, Purdue failed that test last night, and that is a concern. And Matt Painter again said the same thing. Uh, where is Purdue going to find offense uh, when Zach Eady is not on the floor? Zach only got 10 shots last night. Now, he did go to the free throw line nine times, uh, but he only got 10 shots, uh, 10 field goal attempts. Uh, this is a guy that uh, is in a lot of ways uh, right there in the running for national player of the year. So you need to find a way to make sure that guy gets more than 10 shots at a game, or if you don't, you need to find someone else who can step up and, and make plays for you and, and uh, on the offensive end. And it's a great point by you. And, again, Coach Paint said the same thing. Got to find some guys outside of Zach Eady that can help you, when Zach, especially when Zach's in foul trouble. Which is better? Which is a stronger suit, Rob Blackman, for Purdue basketball? Zach Eady's ability 
to send the ball back out from the post if he's not, you know, if he gets the ball and, and nothing's open behind him to, to spray it around the arc or the ball movement that takes place once they get it back out on the perimeter to try to find somebody open? Uh, probably the latter. Uh, and I would add this. The one thing Purdue's been really good at this year, maybe not so much last night, but for the most part, Purdue has, has done a really good job of when Zach Eady throws the ball out of the post, Purdue's been good about throwing it back into him, which did not happen at all last year. And I think Zach got a little frustrated with that. I don't know if he would admit that publicly. But I think last year when Zach threw the ball out of the post, he knew he was not going to see the ball again, unless he got an offensive rebound. This year's team's been really good about allowing Zach to reposition himself, maybe post up a little bit deeper, maybe carve out a little more space, then throw the ball right back into him and let him go to work. Um, Again, maybe not as good about that last night as Purdue has been, um, but I think that's the bigger key right there, Jake. Uh, If Zach is willing to give the ball up, which he has been, he's a willing passer, as long as Purdue's willing to throw it back into him, because, I mean, let's face it, uh, and he's seven foot four, two hundred ninety-five pounds. There, even in the Big Ten, uh, there are rarely big guys that can just match up for him, man for man, in the post. Look at Cliff Amore, one of the best defenders in all of the Big Ten, six eleven, uh, probably the best overall athlete in the Big Ten for a guy of his size. Even with him singled up in the post last night against Zach Eady, any time the ball was thrown in there, they double teamed him, sometimes triple teamed him. Um, so that's yeah, that's. That's where I see it anyway. Uh, Zach does a good job of getting the ball out of his hands. As long as Purdue will throw it back into him, Purdue's in pretty good shape most of the time. Kenny's Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilers. He's with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Rob, all of a sudden you just look at this week, and I remember saying on the show yesterday that at the time, I think Purdue had one ranked opponent until like March maybe um, I think Ohio State might have yeah. cracked the top 25 but those polls were, weren't out yet and now I'm yeah. looking at the schedule I'm like wait a minute for the next five are on the road this Big <laughs> Ten looks to me like I don't know if it's super top heavy this year I mean certainly Purdue is a very very good team but you know you don't have a ton of ranked teams but I don't know if you got a lot of basement dwellers either I'm sure I say this every year in early January about the Big Ten but it just seems like this is a year that Four or five losses is probably going to be the Big Ten champ. Yeah, and it's kind of always been, and, and you guys know this, Kevin, you guys, you've followed it long enough. It's normally normally what's been the case, at least since we've gone to the 20-game schedule. If you win all of your home games and you can get half the road games, you're 15-5 and five and you're always right there in the hunt. Uh, you're, you're at least in t- you're right there until the last weekend. Definitely, you might not win it. You might not win it, but you're in the conversation in the final weekend. That's what stings so much about losing last night because you've lost a home game. Uh, same thing happened to Purdue last year. You know, Purdue does not win the Big Ten. Uh, they, they 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 did not win the Big Ten by one game. They were finished one game out of out of a tie for first. Well, if you go back to early January, what happened? Purdue lost a home game to Wisconsin. You would love to have that game back because if you have if you win that game, you're a Big Ten champion. <laughs> so you hope the same thing doesn't happen this year. But yes, uh, you you just said it. Five losses, you're going to be right in the conversation at the end of the season. I just don't see it. And, and even with Purdue, and obviously I love Purdue. I work for Purdue. Uh, they're number one in the country. They started the season thirteen and zero. But but did I think Purdue was about to just run roughshod over the Big Ten and go twenty and zero? No way. Uh, I still believe that the winner of this league is probably a five-loss team just because of the things that you were talking about. So 
that's what stings so much about losing a home game. And, and, and to your earlier point, to start this this conversation here, um, yeah, this is a tough week for Purdue, especially to start the week with a loss because you're playing three games in six days. Uh, in the one home game you had on the schedule, uh, you just gave that one away. So now you're going to Ohio State, who, who has moved into the top 25. Then you have that neutral site game in Philadelphia against Penn State at the Palestra uh, on Sunday. Uh, so, this, yeah, this a, a, a difficult week for Purdue. Just got a whole lot more difficult with that loss last night. Rob, is there any chance – Rob Blackman's our guest. He's the voice of the Purdue Boilermakers. He's on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Is there any chance that Purdue benefits from the ghost of St. Peter's? And by that I mean, you know, a year ago, so much expectation and promise, and they were so good, really, and then they get beat by a team that, that you know, played hard and came together at the right time, whatever. This year's team, to go from unranked to number one and to have all of that praise and to get some really significant early season wins, can they benefit, do you think, or is it mentioned at all about the fact of, listen, you got to mind your P's and Q's every single game out because look what can happen. Uh, it, it is mentioned. The only concern there, Jake, is that most of this team – has no idea what you're talking about because they weren't around for that game. Right. Last year. Yeah. Some of the some of the uh, younger guys for sure. Right. I mean, it, it, Purdue has 14 guys on the on the roster, uh, seven of which are either freshmen or redshirt freshmen. Uh, now, not all of those guys play, like Will Berg, uh, it, it, Cam Heidi, are redshirting uh, this year. But my point being, 14 guys on a roster, seven of them freshmen or redshirt freshmen. So a lot of these guys weren't even around last year, and you can talk to your blue in the face about St. Peter's. It doesn't mean anything to them. They weren't there. They weren't a part of it. They don't know what you're talking about. Sure, they watched it on TV, uh, but it's not going to hit home with them. But if the veteran leadership, the few guys that Purdue does have that were playing in that game last year and weren't part of that team, uh, sure, if, if they can get that message across to the younger guys, it, yes, it can be a difference maker. Um, but again, I, I think what's best for this team is probably in, a lo- in the long run what happened last night uh, for guys uh, like uh, like Trey Kaufman, Wren, uh, like Braden Smith, like Fletcher Lawyer, the guys who didn't play last year, uh, to see what Big Ten basketball is really all about. Because last night was a Big Ten game. That was a bruiser. Uh, that was a uh, as assistant coach Paul Lusk said to us on our pregame show. Uh, you know, you're at the portion of the schedule now where basketball is not a uh, is not a contact sport; it's a collision sport, and that was a collision game last night. Uh, so, if if the young guys can you know grasp just how physical the game is now that the Big Ten season is in full swing, then then Purdue's going to have a chance to 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 be there in the end. My apologies for asking this, Rob. Maybe I should have known. For what reason was the Penn State game moved to yeah, I was the curious about that too. And yeah. that's a super cool gem, man. I'm, I'm envious of you. The only reason I say it, for those that are unfamiliar, the Palestra is a historic gem on the University of Pennsylvania campus. It's where the, the really, really, really famous Philadelphia high school championships are held, like for the Catholic schools of Philadelphia. Kobe Bryant's one of those that has a scoring record in it. But it's not very big. I mean, it's like the Hoosier yeah. gym on steroids. So why was the game moved there? Well, uh, so this came, this is my understanding, and I do believe this is correct. Uh, but if you remember a couple of years ago, uh, Iowa played there against Penn State because Fran McCaffrey is a graduate of Penn. He went to Penn, graduated from Penn, and so they thought that would be kind of a nice tip of the cap to let him coach uh, in the same gym that he played. 
Now, to make that happen, Penn State had to give up a home game, but uh, they were willing to do that and did. So I don't know whose idea it was, whether it was Purdue's or Penn State's, but because of Micah Shrewsbury's uh, relationship with Coach Painter, obviously they're, they're not only longtime coaching uh, compadres, but they're good friends as well. Uh, Micah, a longtime assistant at Purdue, um, one of the two came up with the idea, hey, would you mind giving up another home game, uh, Penn, uh, you being Penn State, and playing us in the Pelester? We think that'd be pretty cool. And, uh, again, I don't know who initiated the conversation, but obviously the other one said, absolutely, let's do it. So that really, what it really comes down to is the fact that Coach Shrewsbury and Coach Painter are very good friends, and uh, they both thought it would be a pretty cool idea. Again, to be fair to Penn State, a tip of the cap to them because they're giving up a home game to do this. This should be their home game, uh, but they're giving up a home game to play us there. Okay, it'll be at Ohio State on Thursday, and as we just mentioned there, Penn State with Micah Shrewsbury, the former Matt Painter assistant, on a neutral, and put that in quotes, floor coming up here on Sunday. Rob, thank you for the time, man. Okay, guys, thank you.